Our gospel reading this morning comes from the first chapter of Matthew. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. When Jesus' mother, Mary, was engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, an upright person unwilling to disgrace her, decided to divorce her quietly. This was Joseph's intention when suddenly the angel of God appeared in a dream and said, Joseph, heir to the house of David, don't be afraid to wed Mary. It is by the Holy Spirit that she was conceived this child. She is to have a son, and you are to name him Jesus. Our God saves because he will save the people from their sins. All this happened to fulfill what God has said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and give birth, and the child will be named Emmanuel, a name that means God is with us. When Joseph awoke, he did as the angel of God had directed, and they went ahead with the marriage. He did not have sex with her until she had given birth. She had a son, and they named him Jesus. Every ancient hero has an origin story. There are stories their followers would tell and retell about their birth, stories that help them remember who they are and what they believed. These stories were often fantastic. They were full of incredible imagery, like divine hosts heralding their arrival, visitors coming to pay homage, and age-old predictions of their birth. The origin story of our hero is precious to us. It's a story not concerned with history so much as it's concerned with setting the stage well, with training our eyes to be ready to catch the significance of what Jesus would become. Matthew and Luke both craft distinct nativities, sermons about what their Savior meant to them. And more than once, I've wondered, what would happen if we were to do that work? What would happen if we were to take up the craft of myth-making, to assemble a story reflecting what we believe is most significant about Jesus' life? One less concerned with metaphysical drama and more to do with the world-redeeming potential of love. I wonder if we might tell a story that sounds something like this. No pain is beyond the realm of God's redeeming power. Joseph could still hear his father teaching this lesson as he and his brother Solomon sat on his knees. Even as a child, Joseph had accepted his father's words as holy doctrine. His brother, however, always asked questions. What does that mean, Dad? Solomon asked to Joseph's quiet annoyance. It means, son, their father continued patiently, that God does not waste suffering. It means that our people have known pain. We've been slaves in Egypt, subjects of Assyria. But any time we were willing to let go of our anger and fear and listen to God's spirit, God has worked all things to the, together for the good of those who love God. 
God creates life from dust, and God's love has grown a garden even from the most horrible materials, if only we'll let it. The most horrible materials. Across the decades, these words now flashed through Joseph's mind as he sat in the modest one-room hovel gazing at the dirt floor. He'd never really had a reason to doubt his father, but now his grief weighing him to his seat. He realized just how childish the whole idea sounded. His mouth twitched involuntarily a few times. Before him was a young woman, trembling as if awaiting judgment. She looked down at where he sat, her breathing sharp. Every few moments, her body would shudder with an echo of the sobs that had punctuated her story. Her eyes, swollen from crying, pleaded with him to say something. But Joseph didn't know what to say. He and Mary were meant to be married in a few months' time, but right now he found he couldn't even meet her eye. Images from her story raked across his mind. She'd been on the road, alone, hurrying to make it home before nightfall. That was when she'd seen the small band of Roman soldiers roughhousing and moving down the road towards her. She panicked. She knew she shouldn't be out here without a chaperone, and she wanted nothing more than to become invisible, to hide, but there was no shelter on the open terrain. Afterwards, she told Joseph they'd threatened her, said that if she told anyone what they'd done, that they'd burn her paltry village to the ground. They said they would cite suspicion of sedition, but it wouldn't matter because no one would care to follow up. The threat was unnecessary. Shame was a better gag than any words of intimidation. She thought she'd take the story to her grave, that is, until she realized that her body was on the verge of telling the story for her. And then a new fear dominated her mind. What would happen to the child? Would they face, what life would they face as an adulteress and a bastard? She knew how cruel the world could be. And she knew Joseph's mercy was their only chance. Meanwhile, Joseph still couldn't speak. He felt like a child, naked, powerless in the face of forces so far beyond his control, forces that he was now realizing could do with any of them as they pleased. And in the confusion and the fear, he didn't take the time to imagine how Mary must be feeling. I have to go. The words were involuntary. It was as though his body had decided to leave, bypassing his mind altogether. His muscles ached as he stood and ducked under the lintel and out of Mary's sight. She knew he was her only chance. And as she watched him go, she felt despair close in. Joseph had grown up to be a carpenter, preferring a quiet, predictable line of work with his hands. His brother, however, thoughtful and studious, had grown up to be a rabbi, and they tried to keep in touch. Every now and then, Joseph's work would take him along a road that passed through his brother's city, and they would visit for a while. But their towns were not directly connected by any road, which meant a trip just to visit the other would take them through a patch of desert, 
which it was generally best to avoid. No one went into the desert unless they had to. But that morning, Joseph knew he had to. Now he sat recovering from his journey, reclining under the stars. And Joseph and his brother sat on top of Solomon's roof. As Joseph finished his story and waited on his brother to process, he longed for the simplicity and the comfort of those days on his father's knee. Solomon was stroking his beard, allowing himself to feel the weight of the story. And Joseph wished he'd say something. And that thought made him think of Mary looking at him, waiting for him to say something. And he realized he shouldn't have left her like that. And what is it you're considering doing now? Solomon asked after a moment, still looking at the stars. Well, I'll let her go, Joseph said with some clarity. Quietly, of course. I don't want her and her family to suffer any more shame than they already will. His brother continued to stroke his beard, nodding thoughtfully. You're feeling afraid, he observed. And Joseph looked at him defensively. Well, I don't know about that. I'm, I'm angry, that's for sure. And what is anger exactly, if not the bitter fruit of fear? Solomon asked calmly. What is anger, if not the reaction of a creature forced into a corner, fully aware of his powerlessness? Sure, maybe you're angry, but... It's only because you're afraid, and there's no shame in that. Fear is a natural, unavoidable passenger, and it has much to teach you, but one thing is certain. When you allow fear to steer your boat, you and everyone around you will suffer. How do you mean? It was Joseph's turn to ask questions now. Listen, Joseph. Solomon explained, looking now at the ground. In all my studies, in, in learning the law and the history of the prophets, I've come to the conclusion that there is really only one sin, and it is bowing to fear as your God. Think about it. It's the fear of not having enough that leads us to steal from our neighbors and take what isn't ours, to oppress the poor and pervert justice. It's fear of the unknown that leads us to treat the foreigner or the immigrant harshly, forgetting that we were once immigrants ourselves. It's fear that we won't be loved that leads us to lie or to distort the truth. And it's fear of not having joy that leads us to lust and gluttony. And these things always, always end in suffering. It's a kind of collective human madness over and over, we believe that fear will get us what we want, but it never does. It just sows more fear, more suffering. And we may try to bury it down deep, but then it'll grow or it'll come out in other ways, things like aggression and anger. But we fool ourselves. Joseph, it's the fear of losing control that could lead an empire to crush our people and steal our freedom. And what has it produced but dehumanization and rebellion? It's fear of powerlessness that could lead a foolish soldier to demonstrate a sick sense of power by taking advantage of an innocent young woman. And it is that same fear that could lead a foolish carpenter to abandon a woman and child that need his help. Joseph was taken aback at the intensity of his brother's last words. He turned to find that Solomon was no longer gazing at the ground, but staring hard at him. When we bow to 
or try to hide our fear, he repeated decisively. We and those around us will suffer. And there was a long moment where they could only stare at each other. Eventually, Solomon sat back in his seat and spoke. It is a terrible thing what happened, a terrible thing. But no pain is beyond the realm of God's redeeming power. God creates life from dust, and God's love, God's love has grown a garden even with the most horrible materials, Joseph finished from memory. Solomon nodded. Unless, of course, your fear blocks the way. That night, Joseph fell asleep thinking about his brother's words, and as he slept, he had a dream. In his dream, he stood in a dark forest, lost and disoriented, looking around desperately for a bearing. And in the distance, he noticed a ghastly shape moving towards him. So he ran, terrified. Looking over his shoulder, he found to his dismay that the faster he ran, the more closely the specter followed until he stopped out of breath. If I can't flee from it, he thought, then I'll fight it. Determined and angry, he turned and began to pound against the wraith-like form, but it seemed the harder he struck, the more solid and imposing the thing became until Joseph's hands throbbed with pain and he lost his footing. Falling against a tree, he gave up. He had no choice but to accept his fate. And he looked directly into the demon's face. He looked long enough that his fear started to subside. He looked long enough that he noticed the spirit's arms were outstretched. And knowing nothing else to do, he stood and embraced the specter. And he found that when he did, it transfigured into an angel. It shone brilliantly, illuminating the forest around him, revealing it to be a bountiful and beautiful garden, and it took Joseph's breath away, and he woke with a start, knowing what he had to do. Pardon me, he said the following afternoon with a quick knock on the hovel's door. Mary's sisters, working around the room, looked up in suspicion. And Joseph didn't see Mary among them. I, uh, I hoped I could have a word with Mary. The women exchanged looks. She's outside, one of them said, gesturing towards with her head, around back. Knowing it was far too hot for her to be doing work outside, Joseph forced himself to nod courteously and to thank the women. He walked around behind the small home and found her there. She was scrubbing a pot over a small basin. And when Mary saw him approach, she dropped her pot in the water and stood quickly, her face guarded. It had been three days since he left her weeping in that hovel. And now she stared at him with some combination of fear and resolution, as though she were determined to stand her ground even if he hit her. And for a long moment, they just waited, unsure of which step to take, but it was Joseph who broke the silence. Mary, he began, I'm, I'm so sorry. She remained silent, still afraid, still resolved. 
She knew he had the power to have her stoned if he chose. I'm sorry I walked away, he continued. You didn't deserve that. I shouldn't have left you alone. I was, I was afraid. And at this, Mary's shoulders fell slightly, and her face softened into a look of suspicious confusion. I, uh, I had a dream, Joseph continued desperately, unsure how to explain. And when I woke up, I, it was like I realized what would happen if I left. It, it felt like I could see the child being born into this cloud of scorn, feeling like he was unloved and ashamed. I imagined him becoming hard and cruel, lashing out and infecting others with that same spirit that had caused him, that had caused you so much pain. And then I thought of you alone and cold to the world, and I realized, I realized it didn't have to be this way. Joseph sat down, leaning against the hovel. Mary, I'm tired of being afraid. It, it never got me anywhere I wanted to go. He put his head in his hands for a moment, and Mary continued to stare at him cautiously. Looking up again, he said, You know, my father always told me that pain is redeemed only when we let go of fear and let love in. He, he told me that nothing was beyond God's redemption. Nothing. Now, I don't pretend to understand what you've been through. But I've been wondering, what would our world look like if we really believed that that were possible? If we stopped bowing to the fear of suffering and death and shame and allowed love instead? If we let go of ourselves and chose to be vessels of God's grace for ourselves and others? Those old stories and those cycles of suffering, they would just fall apart. Children would... He looked up at Mary. Mary, if we let it, this child, through all the complication and all the pain, could grow into a beautiful, wonderful human being, knowing he was a totally beloved child of God, because that's what we tell him he is. The only thing standing in the way of that happening is our choices, is, is our fear. Mary, if, if we were to do the hard thing, if we were to choose love over fear, love for one another, love for this child, this child could be living proof that redemption is possible, that new life is possible. The child's very existence would be God's redemption made visible, God's love made flesh. It would be a symbol of salvation from the, the madness that keeps us in these cages of fear. And we'll name him Jesus, Mary said definitively. She'd been silent up to that point, so her voice surprised Joseph. He saw tears on her face again, but the tears were different than they had been. Hope lit up her dark eyes. Jesus, Joseph knew, was a common name. It was the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means our God saves. He stood up. It's perfect, he told her. They embraced, and they both allowed themselves to weep. It would be hard, and there would be much work to do for both of them. There would be a time for anger and a time for doubt, but this, they decided, is where it would begin. It would begin with their tears watering the seeds of new life 
about to break forth from the dust beneath their feet. People of God, Jesus is the one that taught me that there is liberation from the madness, from the fear, and that that liberation is through the doorway of love. Courageous love for ourselves and for others. Jesus is the one that taught me that this spirit, the one that blesses its enemies and sins reign to nourish the just and the unjust alike, is the narrow gate through which we might be co-creators of a new world through which we might make manifest the kingdom of God. This Christmas, this week, as love is born into the world, may we find ourselves in this Christmas story. May we let go of the fear that has done nothing more than tear us apart and allow God's love and grace to flow through us all. May we have the courage to write a new story and to be co-creators of a new world alongside Christ. Amen.